Uh, I have had a really good time doing this session. Uh, this I consider to be a fundamental topic, but it's one that has, you know, split churches and caused difficulties, and it's one that's worth thinking about. The part that's been very controversial, in my opinion, has been trying to come up with the doctrinal formulations that everybody can agree to. And the fortunate thing is, I think the way grace operates in your life does not have to, uh, it can float a little bit free of the precise doctrinal formulation. I think you can read what the Bible says, and I think you can apply it and begin to get the good God intends for you to get out of grace without having to nail down every last doctrinal piece. And that's a blessing, uh, I believe. And I hope that we've been able to explore how some of grace actually uh, affects the Christian life in this series. Uh, the, the message that I've been saying over and over and over again in here, as I've tried to look about how grace impacts us is that it's not grace is not about how much you do it's about how close you get to god I, you know it's it's this whole issue of god cleansing us through the blood of christ to make us clean so that this this thing that was very rare in the old testament god actually coming to dwell with his people with all the walls and insulation and priesthood and blood of the tabernacle becomes available so that you are the tabernacle. God actually tabernacles in you. You are the temple. That's only possible through, through this incredible sacrifice of Jesus Christ, making you safe and clean for that to happen. And God is in you now. And grace is about you welcoming that and every day becoming more and more capable of showing that out into the world and being that temple. Uh, and, and the more that your life lives like that, the more you're going to serve the purpose that God built you to do. The last session, this last session, uh, come, uh, the title of it is taken from a saying by Paul that we're going to explore, my grace is sufficient for you. I want to start with a picture. Uh, can you guys see that picture? Does anybody recognize, it'd be weird if you recognized it, but somebody might. So this is a woodcut uh, by Doré illustrating, which is like 19th century, illustrating Dante's Divine Comedy. And this is the moment when Dante's guide shows him a vision of heaven. And it was the only vision of heaven that I thought wasn't silly. So I liked this one. Uh, and you, you, can, you can almost see the attempt in two tones to get across the awesomeness of this vision. Um, uh, Dory's a, an amazing artist. Um, and I picked that because that phrase, my grace is sufficient for you, comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn over there. And it comes, it starts with Paul's vision of heaven. Now he just says, you know, he kind of 
starts off by saying, well, it's not me, really. I know this guy. I know a man who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. I know this man. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows that. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to say. And I will boast about a man like that, but I'll not boast about myself except about the things that make me weak. So this incredible experience was had. Now, it turns out it's Paul's own experience. He kind of puts it in the third person, but it's him. But he lets the cat out of the bag down in verse 7. If you've got your Bibles, you can look down in verse 7. To keep me from becoming conceited uh, by these overwhelming uh, revelations, to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me. And three times, verse 8 says, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me this, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more in my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardship, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Verse 9 is our title phrase, my grace is sufficient for you. To keep me from becoming conceited, God gave me this messenger of Satan. I was given this messenger of Satan to torment me, this this thorn in my flesh. Scholars have speculated for a long, long time. We have vanishingly few clues to know exactly what the nature of Paul's torment was. He had so many bad things happen to him in his life after he became a Christian missionary. It could have been any number of ailments. A lot of people think it's his eyes, other issues. He had so much bad stuff happen to him, it could be almost anything. The point is, he asked for God to help him, and God said no. Three times he begged for God's help. This is Paul, by the way. Paul, who in Ephesus would just be working away at his tent-making business, and his, he'd get all sweaty, he had a sweat rag around his head. He would take that off and lay it on. People would take that away, and, and miracles would happen just with Paul's sweat. You remember that? That's in Exodus. I mean, that's in uh, Acts chapter 19 when he was working in Ephesus. Paul casts out demons, incredible acts of healings that he does. And now here he's asking for himself to be healed so I can do more of your work, Lord. Begging God. God says no. And the way Paul comes to understand it, what the Holy Spirit reveals to him him is, no, my grace is enough for you. You don't need my healing. My grace is enough. My power is made perfect or or complete in your weakness. And Paul says, okay. So I guess when I'm weak, then I am strong. 
guess when I am weak, then I am strong. That's the way Paul analyzes it. We could dismiss Paul as being rhetorical here, but I don't think we should. I think he really means it. There is a strength which comes from God moving in our weaknesses. Now, we've said a lot of fairly cheerful things about grace. This aspect of grace is not cheerful to me. This is a bit painful. That God can move in our diseases. God can move in our failures. God can move in our tragedies. That God, in our weak spots, God can be present in us and make us strong. I think Paul means it when he says, I can rejoice in my weakness. Because when I am weak, then I am strong. And the reason why I think that's not just rhetorical for Paul, I think he really means that, is he, he, I think he's reflecting back. This is actually, if you think about it, this is not an uncommon story in the Bible, is it? God with somebody, even when they're weak, creating strength, right? That's, that's actually a pretty common story. The Bible loves to tell the story of weakness that draws close to God, turning into strength. Abraham and Sarah. What were the odds? A 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old lady going to have a baby. But with God, they do. Joseph in Egypt. This guy who doesn't even speak Egyptian. Slave. Accused falsely of sexual harassment and rape, or attempted rape. What are the odds that he's going to end up running the whole country? Weakness drawn close to God turned into strength. Israel, the first city that they attack in the promised land, Jericho. What are the odds that instead of building siege ramps and catapults and, and polishing your swords, let's just worship God seven times around the city. Let's just seven days, give a Sabbath, a week of worship to God and blow trumpets. What are the odds that Gideon, with just 300, will be able to rout his enemies? He was scared to go with the full army. And God says, let's get rid of some of those guys. We have too many. God loves when weakness draws close to him. And he loves to bring strength out of it. What are the odds that David, with no armor, no advanced weaponry, up against somebody that's trained for war his entire life and stands like a giant, above the battlefield with, with advanced weaponry, what are the odds that David will come out victorious? God loves that story where your weakness, drawn close to God, turns into strength. In fact, we talked about this in the last session, what's the greatest victory that ever happened in the entire history of the world? What's the greatest victory? that ever happened in the entire history of the world. Now, there have been some amazing victories that people didn't expect. Alexander the Great at Gagamela, 
pretty impressive. ISIS as well. Anthony and Cleopatra getting beaten. Uh, and, and a lot of others. But we all know the greatest victory. If you're a Christian, you know the greatest victory. And it was a moment of terrible weakness. Jesus Christ on the cross. Colossians 2, 15. says, in that moment, Jesus didn't just win a victory for all of us. He actually won this cosmic victory. Where all the, the cosmic powers and authorities, whatever those are, don't ask me. I mean, you can ask me. I just don't know. Um, the cosmic powers and authority that were in rebellion or in some kind of opposition to God, even those cosmic, in that moment of ultimate weakness on the cross, Jesus defeated them and triumphed over them. And in fact, by weakness, made a public spectacle of them. Because of God in that moment of weakness. Our problem is, and boy, I've had this problem, and you probably have had a version of this problem too. Our problem is that what I want out of grace is what I wanted out of my driver's ed instructor. Okay, I've got this, now let me handle it, right? I, I wanted the driver's ed instructor to give me the basics, and then I wanted him to give me the wheel. Come on, let me drive this thing. I'm glad that he didn't uh, as soon as I wanted him to. I'm glad that he took his time and let me catch on a little bit, you know, longer than I wanted him to. I resented the fact that my driver's ed instructor didn't trust me behind the wheel. I'm glad he didn't. He was correct. But I resented it because my feeling was I'm 16 years old. I was actually 15 and a half. I'm 15 and a half years old. I've got this. I mean, I needed your help for a minute, but now I've got this. And boy, when I think about God, yeah, God, I had sins. I was terrible. I was separated from you. Thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you for getting me kind of back up on my feet. Yeah, you canceled the debt, and, and you know, my credit card zeroed out. Okay, good. Now I'm back up on my feet. I got this. I got this. And folks, that's a death sentence. That is a, that is a spiritual death sentence when you say to God, I've got this now. I, okay, I'm, I'm going to handle it from here on. You know, I, mean, I appreciate all you did in the past. Thank you for the Jesus thing, but I'm, I'm good now. That's a death sentence. Because grace is all about getting more God in your life. It's, not, it, it, it's about God in you. And that does not make you a lesser being. That actually makes you a human being. That's the only way to be a human being is God in your life. And you want more of that, obviously. When my weakness casts me on God's help, then I become a strong person. That's the way this system works. And Paul had learned that in this situation. 
There is a Japanese art form. Some of you may know this art form. I don't know very much about it. I've seen a few examples of it. One of the names for it is Kintsugi. I think I'm pronouncing that right. This is an art form in which broken things, broken pots, bowls, are mended with gold, the mixture of gold and other elements, but gold. And so you can see clearly where they're shattered and marred and damaged. But the resulting end product is oftentimes stronger than the original, but many, many times more beautiful. You see the cracks. You see the wounds. You see the damage. But it shines now. And broken things that have been treated in this way become 10 times, 20 times, 100 times, 1,000 times, 10,000 times sometimes more valuable than the original object before it was ever damaged. Paul says, when I am weak, then I am strong. Would Paul have been who he was? This is hard to think about. Would Paul have been who he was without his terrible failure of persecuting the church? Now, that was not a good thing. And he was ashamed of it to the end of his life. He says, I'm the worst sinner on earth. And he wasn't being rhetorical when he said that. He meant that. I am the worst, I'm the chief sinner. Rank all the sinners first to last. I'm at the head of the list because of what I did to the church. He believed that. Would he have been who he was for the church if he hadn't done that? This is tough to think about. But I think even his sin, his failure, God turned into a strength for the church. That is weird to think about. But it's something hopeful to think about for you and for me. Because you've got damage in your life that sin's done. You've got damage in your life that maybe relatives have done and, and events have done and disease has perhaps done or other things have happened to you that are bad. And a lot of different ways that you can react to that. But that damage, if you use it to cast yourself on God, if you use it to bring yourself closer to God, that damage can become something that God uses to bless this world and to bless this church. And to bring out of your weakness strength and beauty. Some of you have know exactly what I'm talking about because you've already experienced that. And others of you may be right in the hard, hard whirlwind of having that experience of God taking your weakness and beginning to mold it into something that he can use for good. And I'm sorry 
because it's a terrible message, but I believe it is the correct message of faith. That God will take even the weakest part of you, the part you're really ashamed of sometimes, or that you grieve over the most, and bring strength out of it to use to bless you and to use to bless the people around you. Because, you see, like we've been saying, grace is not about, you know, how much you do, you know, how many things you get in your credit sheet on the plus side of your balance sheet. It's not about how much you do. It's about how close you are to God. This doesn't mean God ever rejoices in our pain. He doesn't. God never rejoices in our pain. If we could advance the slide. But we rejoice in anything, even pain, that brings more God into our lives. And if you, in whatever is the worst part of your life, can open yourself to God and ask for him to make you strong, ask for him to give you endurance, you will find he may even be able to take your failures and turn them into strengths. That's the nature of this amazing grace that God has chosen to give us. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. You guys have been very, very well. We, oh, we have a question. We have two questions. How does the Holy Spirit interact with grace? Well, I may probably be missing the point of that question, so, uh, but I'll take a, a stab at it. But what I've been saying in this session is that the nature of grace is that God draws close to us. In the Old Testament, God in grace drew close to his people and, and when sin made a separation, that was manifested by God having to be more distant from his people. And God drawing close is always an act of grace. Creating the tabernacle, that's an act of grace. Creating the sacrificial system, that's an act of grace. Creating the temple where God actually lives next to us, that's an act of grace. And that actually culminates with the Holy Spirit being given to the church, the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is God reaching this amazing moment where what was a rare thing, God being in the tabernacle, God being in the temple, becomes this incredible thing for you. When you are washed in the waters of baptism in the name of Jesus Christ, one of the things that happens, your sins are washed away, and you become a vessel suitable for the presence of God. You become a temple of God. That's literally what the Bible says about that. And the congregation is also the temple of God. Uh, that's Ephesians, that's also 1 Corinthians. And so how that's manifested is God's spirit, God's Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is just the spirit of God or the spirit of Christ. All of those are the names of the same thing, the same person, God's spirit. So that's how, what I think the connection is. God's grace makes it possible for the Holy Spirit to be in you. 
And these things that we do as Christians, we do by the Spirit. When I obey, when I love, when I grow, that's the Holy Spirit generating life in me. Okay, so that'd be my first shot answer. There may be a follow-up to that because I'm not sure I got the whole point, but that's good. Oh, my goodness. I don't remember all those. Okay. Okay. Uh, all right. So Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is our passage that says uh, you're saved by grace through faith, not of works so that no one can boast. Right? And this is not of yourselves so nobody can boast. Uh, and so, all right, let's turn over to Romans chapter 2, and let's look at this passage. Well, they also referenced one before that, right? Okay. So let's read this section. Um, Romans 2, verses 5 through 11. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, but for the Jew, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. Is that in conflict with saying you're saved by grace through faith and this is not of yourself so that nobody can boast about it, right? P remember that in Ephesians chapter 2, you're saved uh, through grace or by grace through faith. The next verse says, so that you are prepared to do the works that God has, the works of righteousness that God has prepared in advance for you to do, right? Uh, Paul would not understand a theology that said, now that grace has come, God no longer cares about righteousness. And I understand that that theology is out there. It's in some of our devotional songs, actually, creepily enough, and some of our devotional literature. But Paul wouldn't, couldn't make sense of that. In fact, that made him angry when people said stuff like that. That's, if you read Romans chapter 6, that's, that's essentially what people are asking is, well, can I just continue in sin that grace may abound? If it's about grace... 
then why can't I just keep on sinning? What's wrong with that? And Paul has a whole chapter. About, it's a baptismal chapter, actually. He says, well, let's explain to you what just happened when you were baptized as a Christian. You died, and now you've got to live a different life. But for Paul, he doesn't think you're earning salvation. And so his understanding of this passage is not that you're somehow earning salvation. His understanding of what these Old Testament passages mean is not that you're somehow earning your salvation. But he certainly would understand that if you're a person who is rejecting God and being stubborn about God and being boastful about your own righteousness while at the same time not being righteous, which is who he's criticizing here. In chapter 2, he's criticizing the people who get all up in the face of the people in chapter 1 of Romans. Oh, yeah, those are bad guys, Paul. People who are homosexuals and people who hate their parents and people who are gossips. Yeah, you preach that sermon in, Paul, in Romans chapter 1. And, and, and then in Romans 2, Paul does this great little judo flip because he says, just when you're getting all judgmental, Paul says, and let's talk about you guys who say you know all about righteousness and you know the law of God. What about you? And he says, you are the ones who are storing up God's wrath. Because God should be close to you. God should be working in you, and you are keeping him away. And you're storing up wrath for yourselves. God's going to judge. God is going to judge. So for the way Paul sees it is, I mean, one way to think about it, I guess, is if you are the person that pretends like you're close to God, but you're manifesting that in rebellion against God, you're not close to God. You're, you're the older brother. You're ending up away from God. And grace is all about God inviting more God into you. Right? God, and that's what, that's what is supposed to be happening. So, um, you're not in a works-based religion where how much you do is what saves you. We are in a grace-based religion. But if you're doing nothing at all, that's, that has to be because you're keeping God away from you. Right? The way grace will express itself in you is that you're doing more and more as you grow stronger and stronger. So I think that would be a proper way to understand the relationship. Paul could not possibly comprehend the idea that says, oh, now that we're saved by grace, we don't have to do none of that stuff. He really thinks God's just as much in the human righteousness business as he ever has been. He just, God is, is, has moved closer and closer and closer to us thanks to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to make it more and more possible for us to do the righteous acts that he has in mind for us to do. Okay, that would be my take on that. Is that the last one? All right, thank you guys. You have been really, really wonderful in this seminar. Thank you very much.